So the Buddha suggested we contemplate and maintain the five remembrances. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. So the first three of these five point very clearly at a non-negotiable truth of impermanence and how it manifests in our lives on a very personal level. Right? From the moment we emerge out of the womb, our fragile bodies are subjected to a constant process of disintegration. Nobody gets around it. I think it's Suzuki who said, we are born, we set foot on a ship that it is guaranteed to drown. We are guaranteed to drown, to die, to fall apart. One of the problems with, with impermanence is that everybody understands it, everybody gets it. We understand we are falling apart. We understand the scientific, maybe, aspect of it on an intellectual level. But how many of us, how many people in the world actually live their lives based on that understanding? For how many of us that truth descends from the mind, from the thinking mind, into the gut, to the center, into the core of our being? For how many of us does it manifest in the way we speak, in the way we act, in the way we connect with each other? In fact, not only that it doesn't happen quite this way, we, we do the exact opposite. Not only that we don't accept it, we do all we can to deny it. So in the face of this fundamental truth, we create and work very hard to sustain a mental construct. When they try to convince ourselves that it is real. We have a name, an address, a storyline, a thick one that consists of past, present, and future. And we're also surrounded by people who can corroborate my existence, my precious existence. The precious and fixed sense of self. When we grow up, we become more and more identified with this illusion. And as we grow up, it attaches itself to a natural instinct of self-preservation. There is self-preservation of the body. Every creature has it. It's just that we have created a mistake, an error, of attaching it to an illusion then reality does not exist. Somehow, somewhere along the line, we get confused. We get trapped by our own creation. So 
So this self-preservation, right? We end up protecting with what we think is or is residing in this skin bag, what is called the skin bag. Now, the skin bag is a, is a term used in Zen literature and as many other Zen terms. It reflects reality as it is. It's actually a pretty accurate term, right? As we grow older, when the skin starts to sag and wrinkle, we actually look like a, a bag that holds a bunch of bones and some internal organs until it completely falls apart. Of course, we don't want that. So we work very hard to deny it by stretching the skin, by looking, by working hard to look younger. There's no way around it. There's no escape. So in the name of this false sense of self-preservation, we defend groups we identify with, religions, and nations. In the name of the false, we create a lot of havoc, of suffering. You know, I, I thought about this, and, and I, was, I was putting this together. I, was, I thought about the words of John Lennon. And how do they sound in... in in our practice, right? He wrote, imagine there is no country, no religion, nothing to kill or die for. And then he said, I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Right? These are very powerful words that touch so many people. But if you take a moment to examine these words from the point of deep understanding and full acceptance of impermanence, it's actually the exact opposite. What seems to be real is imagined. And what seems to be imagined is real. In reality, there is no country. It's made up. There are no whites, blacks, Asian, Muslims, Jews, Christians. And there is nothing to kill or die for. The world has always been as one. The world is one. It's the exact opposite. We are so deeply stupid and convinced that this is reality and we have to imagine unity. Complete opposite. As the Buddha said, we are upside down. I don't know if John Lennon saw that, but we need to see that. So maybe we have to sing a different song. Maybe we have to stop imagining and dive into reality as it is. We are imagining a separate sense of self. And then we are working hard to protect and defend that and kill others for it. Whether it's arguing with others over stupid things or identifying with a group or a nation and creating and killing others in the name of that. It all comes from the same illusion. So through our fertile imagination, there is a country and there are people who are more worthy of it and those who are not so worthy of it. So fear arises, hatred and discrimination fester. And of course the road to contraction and nationalism is paved, paved with the bricks of our imagination. Again, it's all made up. I mean, I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to examine for yourself and see. Who are you? 
What is the U.S.? What is a border? Who are the others? Who are we afraid of? What are we doing to ourselves? True madness, that's what it is. And it's growing, it's actually growing in our world, it's growing in this country, what we call the US. More and more contraction. You know, Dogen gave us good advice in, in dealing with practice, but also with dealing with everyday life. He said, do not take it lightly and do not give it weight. So if we look at this advice, and if you think that the elections, the results of the elections, are not serious matter that puts everyone in our planet at great risk, then do not take it lightly. Because it is putting each and every one of us on this planet, not just human beings, all sentient beings, at great risk. But if you are in a state of panic and want to vomit every time you hear the words Trump and President mention the same sentence, then I would suggest the second part of Dogen's advice, do not give it weight. Even if you do vomit, do not give it weight. Vomit, get something to drink and move on. And this is how we have to work. We have to work with it. We cannot deny. We cannot try to make it what it's not. This is real. This is serious. Our stupidity have reached great heights. This is beyond politics. We are going to have a president who is utterly vested in self-aggrandizing. It's a word I never was able to pronounce correctly. Aggrandizing, that's it. Has no moral compass, speaks and acts in ways that raise the level of hate and discrimination, and actually brings out the worst in humanity. This is real. This is our so-called leader. This is what our children are exposed to. We are exposed to. We can't take it lightly. We shouldn't take it lightly. Because if we do take it lightly, then again, we don't understand what the practice is about. This is real. And it's not the first time we humans produce such an entity. We have done it in the past. So we need to learn from our history. And this is not about harsh words. You know, sometimes harsh words and abrupt actions are exactly what's needed to bring up awakening and change. But often, words and actions are in the service of an egoic self-preservation rather than in the service of change. It's not about being politically correct, being careful not to offend others, none of that. It's fine, you know, words can be useful. But the biggest question here is, the question here is, what are my words and actions in the service of? And the only way to really see what it is in the service of is to practice honestly, to examine, to not sell and buy. The antidote to madness is wisdom. So in the face of hatred and discrimination, we must practice compassion and inclusiveness. In the face of rising self-centeredness, we must practice selflessness. 
as we see hearts becoming numb, borders closed, and the suffering of so many human beings in the U.S. and overseas increases, we must remember that we are all of the same impermanent nature, all of us, and accept it. Because as long as we don't accept it, we will keep producing many Trumps. Because Trump grows in us. We are the ground from which it grows. It's not personal. You know, I mean, we, we shouldn't hate this guy or the people he's going to surround, he's surrounding himself with. That sometimes I think are worse than him. So this is real, this is serious. And when we experience contraction in the world and in ourselves, we need to practice expansion. Open up when we want to close in. We need to open up. Practice often asks us to do the exact opposite of what we want to do. So now more than ever, we have to do it. And this is what the first, second, and third remembrances speak of. Fourth and fifth point at something different, right? Something that emerges out of that. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. Since there is no fixed and separate self to elevate, defend, protect, all that is left are the words and actions. That's all. Just words and actions and their consequences. So words matter. Actions matter. what we commonly call a self comes down to the way we function with other sentient beings and the way we work with our planet. <coughs> when we treat each other and all other living organisms with care, kindness, and respect, we are acting based on the understanding that impermanence means one giant body. We are everything else. Everything else is us. So when we care for others and for our planet, we care for our true self. That's the real. The other stuff is the imagined. This is the fundamental understanding that lies at the core of Jukai, of precepts, of taking the vows. This is what we vow to do. We vow to pay attention to the way we are living in this world, the way we function, the way we interact with each other. We vow to not elevate a self, to not create, to not protect, to not defend. Do not quantify. So we do it when we take Jukai. Now when we take Jukai, of course, there is study that leads to it, and we take it very seriously. And we may have a certain level of understanding, but we also have a very short attention span, and we forget very quickly. So we have to do it again and remind ourselves to renew the vows. That's where Fusatsu comes in. Now, I know that not all of you have taken the vows. 
But that doesn't change the fact that practice is about the vows, and the vows are about practice. There is no separation there either. The word fusatsu, I think some of you have heard this before, comes from the Sanskrit word posada, which means to, to fast, and to purge the body of harmful toxins that have accumulated as a result of consuming unwholesome foods. Now, for us, in the practice, this does not mean to deprive the body of physical food, although maybe sometimes that's needed. Like the body, the mind also can be intoxicated, is intoxicated, by accumulation of harmful impurities through unobserved thinking, unobserved speaking, and unobserved acting. Unwholesome. We have been exposed to a lot of that recently. Unwholesome words. I just I mentioned last talk I was at the Shoboji on Thursday, and I mentioned uh, that I spoke with somebody in Florida. She's from South America. She was telling me that uh, her friend who was at the mall speaking with uh, her kids in Spanish. She was also from South America. She said that uh, while she was, as she was speaking Spanish with her kids, some guy came by and started yelling at her that in this country, she should only speak English with her kids. This is the unwholesome words and actions that we are exposed to these days. And there are going to be more and more of that. Because the leadership is going to encourage that. So we have to go deeper into the vows, into the practice. We have greater responsibility, greater than ever maybe to bring it out, to share it with the world, to show the world that we are one. And there's nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to kill or die for. So the word Fusatsu for us has two meanings. First one is to nurture the mind with wholesome nourishment. And second, to deprive the mind of unwholesome nourishment. So we have to watch what we're exposed to, how we take in what we're exposed to, how we process it, how we transmute it, if at all. So it's the time for all of us to recite the precepts together and, and to reflect on the deep meaning and clarity they bring into our lives. It's the time to strengthen our trust in the practice. Whether or not you have taken Jukai, it really doesn't matter. Again, this is not, our practice is not linear way of practice or way of thinking that after you take Jukai, you are responsible to uphold vows. From the moment you take on the practice, you are responsible to uphold the vows. We may not want to hear it. I think the word, the word responsibility is a very, can be a very difficult word for people. Commitment. I was talking to somebody at Shoboji on, on, on Thursday, and uh, he's new. He's trying to dip his toes and see how the practice is. And I, and, I, and I mentioned the word commitment. I said that, you know, this is the time to actually commit. If you want to practice, then try it by committing to it. And, of course, there was this immediate reaction to the word commitment. 
It's almost like you know, shrinking away from it. Yeah, I just want to check it out. I don't want to commit. What does it mean to check it out? What does it mean to commit? And what happens when we don't commit to anything? We're doing it, but we're not really doing it. We take a stop, step forward while we take a step back. So we're not really doing something. We're not really examining. To examine is to commit. Wholeheartedly. From the beginning. So we have a responsibility to actualize the fundamental point, as we hear often, right? Which means to cultivate wisdom through meditation, and then to allow this wisdom to guide us in everyday life as we encounter challenges. Actually, the precepts are the way in which wisdom functions in society. And they illustrate the roadmap by which an awakened human being would travel. That's how wisdom functions. And the understanding of the precepts deepens with time. And so is the ability to apply wisdom more skillfully. So it does change with time. It does deepen with time. But nonetheless, we do our best. At every given moment, we do our best to uphold. Knowing that we will trip. We will not obey or not follow a vow or a precept. But knowing also that we can stand up, clean ourselves up, move on and do better next time. There's always that. Rather than lament and worry and regret. So we study the precepts, and again, it's good to remind us, to be reminded of, that we study the precepts and we practice them from three different perspectives. The first one is the black and white perspective. Do not means do not. Do not kills me, kill means do not kill, period. That's it. It's not up for discussion. The second perspective is called the relational perspective or the compassionate perspective which is more the gray areas of our lives and that means that sometimes not killing means to kill sometimes we have to but again the question here is has to be about what are my actions serving what are my words in the service of? Where am I going with this? Why am I saying what I'm saying? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it creating unity? Is it bringing about wisdom? Is it turning the lights on? Or is it doing the opposite? And it's not easy, obviously, because we can convince ourselves that, yeah, no, I'm doing it for the right reasons. I know why I'm doing it. It's not for me, it's for others. We have to get better at that. Get better at deciphering whether or not it is about preserving a, a separate sense of self. Or is it about others? The third perspective is, or is about nothing is ever born, nothing can die, you cannot kill anything. I think sometimes the third perspective is there so we can not give it weight. 
especially at times like that. It's important to check in with the third perspective once in a while. Take a deep breath and then go back to the second perspective. This is a perspective of it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you don't do. We don't matter. Even if the universe ceases to exist, even if we destroy our planet and all living creatures on it, it doesn't matter. And in the big scheme of things, when you look at the, look at the universe and the size of the universe, right? Will it matter? Maybe we're just an experiment. But it does matter. It does matter and we choose to care because we emerge out of the third perspective with wanting to care about our planet, about other people, about our words and actions. So it makes it so powerful. You don't have to do it. You can give up at any point and quit. You're not forced to be here. You're not forced to practice. You're not forced to uphold the vows. Every day we choose this. Right? Because these are not binding chains. They are not binding chains that lead to self-righteousness and rigid behavior. And it can. If we're not practicing correctly, it can. Right? The precepts, these precepts have their own home in generosity, gratitude, and respect. They inspire us to live from truth. Right? And not, they're not a limitation or set of limiting rules that someone tells us we have to do, we have to obey. Precepts help us reflect deeply upon ourselves and examine how we live our lives. So we can do better. We can improve our lives and other people's lives, not in a quantifiable way. Just talking about quality, depth, compassion, wisdom. That is what we deepen. So the 16 Bodhisattva precepts begin with taking refuge in the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And you know, every time I, I do that, every time I look at it, every time I read this, I actually get a deeper sense of what it means. As time goes by, as time goes on, and as I deepen my practice, I see aspects I am not, I'm unable, I was unable to see a week ago, a year ago, three years ago. It only gets deeper and deeper. And more and more meaningful. Especially when it comes to the three treasures. First one is I take refuge in Buddha. Now, the fundamental teachings of Buddhism is rooted in an understanding that everyone is endowed with Buddhahood, with Buddha nature, true nature, a true self. And so to take refuge in the Buddha means to trust that which is inherent, to trust that it has always been this way. We're not inventing anything. To trust that which is beyond arising and vanishing, beyond birth and death. Wisdom and right action flow out of a realization that all things are of interdependent origination. All things flow out of unity and back into unity. Whether we know it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we deny it or not. 
the second one of the three treasures, I take refuge in the Dharma. And the Dharma reflects an inviolable law of all things, which is the self-organizing principle of the universe. It is not subjected to circumstances and conditions, or to our own personal opinions. It's just the way suchness manifests through diversity. And all Buddhist teachings originate out of this unbreakable truth, undestructible truth. And so to take refuge in the Dharma means to merge with the higher intelligence of the universe, rather than oppose or deny it, rather than to obey an imagined order, imagined borders, imagined countries, Imagine colors. The Dharma is colorless, flavorless. So it can take on any color and any flavor. The third one is I take refuge in the Sangha. And the way we see Sangha is as a manifestation of harmony. It is us. A group of people who get together to uphold the practice, to support and help each other through the highs and lows of life, through many challenges we face. It is our way of creating small-scale Dharma-based communities. So instead of waiting for the world to act in sane way, we take on the responsibility to act in sane and wise way. Instead of listening to a mad world, we listen to our own true Buddha nature. And we do it together as a group. As Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. As a group, be the change. So to take refuge in the Sangha means to inspire, encourage, and nurture each other's practice and to do all we can to maintain the vitality of the Sangha so it does not fall apart. To encourage each other. A lot of that is needed. I see it. I'm sure you feel it at different times. You know, we lose the momentum. We get discouraged. That means right now, sit still, by the way. And don't move. Fold your legs. It means be disciplined. It means don't obey the small self that doesn't know enough ever, always wants something else. That means when we bow, we put our forehead on the ground. We level it. Right? The practice is to make the uneven even, to recognize that we harbor the root cause of suffering in this world. The only way to work with it, the only way to subdue that force, that power in us, is to put the forehead on the ground. To not give it an inch. Because you give it an inch, it wants a mile. And you give it a mile, it wants the world. And in case you haven't noticed, it is taking over the world. So when you put your forehead on the ground, you are subduing that. Bowing is one of the more powerful antidotes to madness. Then come the three pure precepts. I vow to not create harm. 
is the first of the three pure precepts, is to not create harm. It means to take the responsibility to think, speak, and act in ways that do not cause harm or suffering. Just take that and share that with the world. That will do a lot of good. Just that. The second one is I vow to practice good. The second of the pure precepts, to practice goodness, means to be in the world as a vehicle for goodness in all circumstances, in all times. To do good just for the sake of doing good, without expecting any reward or recognition. without waiting for praise, without running away from criticism, to do good just for the sake of doing good. Even if someone spits at it, even if someone reviles it, and you, it doesn't matter. Because you don't do good for any other reason. Another great way to subdue the madness in us, isn't it? Because while we do good, there is a part of us, yeah, I want people to see that. I want someone to recognize it. I want someone to tell me, you're really good. Great job. Because otherwise, why should I bother? And then the third one, and this is I vow to actualize good for others. This means to transcend the small sphere of our personal lives, bridge the gap between self and other, and dedicate our lives for the well-being of all creations. It's to become a force of goodness and consciously act in ways that benefit others by letting go of the small self. Living a life of service for others becomes as simple as scratching your nose. Because there's no need for recognition. Because when the nose is itchy, you just scratch it. When someone is of need of anything, you just offer it. You give it freely, openly. Because serving others is serving you. I think it was Yasutani Roshi who said, when he, when he was asked about the practice or the vows, he said, I only bow to myself. I only bow to myself, because there is no other. Then the ten grave precepts, which outline the way we actualize the three pure precepts in everyday life. So we take on the responsibility to intercept the habitual patterns by paying close attention to how we act, how we speak, and becoming fully engaged while functioning as human beings in society. So the first one is, I vow to nurture life, I will not kill. This is to actualize non-harming, which means nurturing and supporting life in a non-discriminating way. In a non-discriminating way. Just supporting life. Not by measuring it first and saying, is it worthy? Is this life worthy? It means to deeply appreciate the net of creation as we chant. With its infinite life and energy that co-create our precious earth and universe. We don't just recite words. And it can very easily become that, especially because you know, we, we do this every Sunday. We do service, we chant, that our lips are moving. Oh yeah, I've done it many times before. Okay, I'll do it again because I have to. It's part of the program. No, it's not part of the program. And you don't have to do it. But since we are doing it already, then do it. Don't just move the lips. 
embody it as you chant and then let it echo through your life when you walk out of here. So it is actualized. The second ones I vow to be giving, I will not steal. Right? The second is to be giving, to not steal, to examine the mind of desire and greed, and to give up one's covetousness. This means to realize inherent completion of all things and to recognize a sense of, that a sense of lack is an illusion. Nothing is missing. Nothing more is needed. Completeness is inherent. With the voice that says, yeah, but I still don't have this and that. With the voice that questions completion, you are complete. In the mud, feeling stuck, feeling not so worthy, you are complete. Third one is about to honor the body. I will not misuse sexuality. Recognizing our physical desires and impulses, we commit to working with these energies in ways that do not create harm to ourselves and to others. Understanding the sexual nature of our bodies, we vow here to be responsible for the way we express it and to cultivate respect and dignity in all relationships. Both ones are vowed to manifest truth. I will not lie. This means to understand that the Dharma is complete, right? It is already one with all things. And it means to realize that everything is completely exposed. No things are of the same nature. So we devote ourselves to deeply examine the desire to lie. And we learn to courageously own up to our thoughts, words, and actions. We do it while standing firmly in the Dharma ground. Being rooted in practice, we vow to speak from the heart and to listen wholeheartedly. Fifth one is I vow to cultivate clarity. I will not cloud the mind. These precepts sheds light on our propensity to act in ways that originate in ignorance. To not appreciate the preciousness of life. Right? You know, we poison our minds with intoxicants that drive us to speak and act in harmful and hurtful ways. Through cultivating, cultivating clarity of mind, we recognize and work through our own pain instead of clouding ourselves with intoxicants. The Buddha mind is originally pure and clear. Do not let it become clouded. Now this is not just intoxicants. This is also drinking the liquor of self. The liquor of separateness. Of ego. Clinging. That is intoxicating us. To not obey the small self. This is perhaps the, the, the greatest addiction of all, the addiction to self. Because all other addictions begin from there. Just watch how often, how many times a day you give in to the ego, you give in to the self. Through likes, dislikes, and indifference through running away from what you don't like, running towards what you like. The greatest addiction of all. Sixth one, I've had to realize equality. I will not speak of others' errors and faults. This is to see the inherent perfection 
and not to speak of others' errors and faults. The faith of mind says, one has many kinds, two have no duality. To realize equality is to recognize that while appearances vary, we are all of the same origin. Our unexamined fears and insecurities drive us to speak of others' faults and errors, which lead to discrimination, hatred, violence, and conflict. It's quite amazing how relevant these precepts are today more than ever. I don't know about you, but last week, on Wednesday morning, I woke up with heavy heart, but yet encouraged, recognizing how important it is for us to snap out, wake up, shake up, not obey the little self anymore. Take on the practice fully and create changes. Open up people's hearts. Turn on the lights. How important that is. Seventh one is I vow to practice humility. I will not elevate the self and blame others. This is to recognize the illusory nature of separate existence and to realize that self and other are not two. To elevate oneself is to operate under the falsehood of a grasping self that seeks self-preservation through some form of tyranny. We are going to have an example of that a picture of that for the next four years. This is what it is. This is tyranny. If this doesn't wake us up, maybe we should close shop and join everybody else because the practice will be worthless. If this doesn't wake us up, I don't know what will. By practice humility and embracing not knowing, we, we realize that there is no self to elevate and there is no other to belittle. Eighth one is I will share generosity or generously. I will not be withholding. Eighth great precept is to share generously, to not cultivate a possessive mind, to recognize no fixed self is to realize that no one can grasp and nothing can be grasped. This realization opens up the door to acts of generosity that are essentially traceless and self-fulfilling. When self and other are dropped, Generosity is naturally boundless, as scratching the nose. The ninth one is, I will cultivate patience. I will not be angry. This means to actualize harmony by cultivating kindness. This is not about what not to do. It's about what to do. All of them, all these precepts, the action-oriented, This is a commitment to being in the world as an expression of loving kindness that is seeking and cultivating harmony in the midst of diversity and differences. It's a commitment to observe the arising of anger, and it does arise, and to mindfully transform and transmute it to compassionate action. Right? Every day we are presented with many opportunities to face our own intense emotions process them in the light of wisdom 
transmute the impurities into healing words and actions. Now, to not be angry does not mean to not experience anger. Of course we experience anger. Of course we get pissed off. For many reasons, right? We do. We get upset. But to not own it, I am not angry. I experience anger. Which means I am the one who can transmute this anger. What I do with this anger is more important. It's okay to be pissed off after what happened last Wednesday. It makes sense. But if we're pissed off and then we end up blaming others and hating them, then we are already operating in the service of a self, in the service of anger. If we take this anger and we transmute it and we, instead of hating others, love and bring more kindness to the world, then anger works very well. So there's nothing to reject, nothing to deny. We can't walk around with a flower in our hand and a big smile. Because that won't be true. This is crappy. Many of us did not want this outcome. So don't pretend. Don't make light of it. Just work with it. Transmute it. The tenth one is I vow devotion to the practice. I will not defile the three treasures. This is to not defile the three treasures, which means we fully devote ourselves to the practice. We develop an experiential and intimate understanding of why Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, why the three treasures are, con are considered Treasures. Not to believe, oh yeah, you should uphold those, because it says so in the book. To experience it for yourself. To develop connections, deep connections, with each other. To develop accountability for our actions and words to care, to choose to care about each other. To choose to keep waking up Buddha nature. The three treasures are at the heart, at the core of all the precepts of the practice. So we encounter again the practice of appreciation, right? As we dive deeply into true nature, the essential teachings, and our supportive community, right? Through devotion to daily zazen and all other aspects of practice, we become a living embodiment of our wisdom tradition. A living embodiment. So the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. How precious, how urgent, how needed. So what we're going to do together now is take on these precepts wholeheartedly. And we're going to do it by standing up. We're going to hear Myogen announce each of those precepts. And Keiichi will hit the gong. And we're all going to make a full bow for each one of them. And a full bow is a full bow. It is putting the forehead on the ground. When we're going to stand up, 
listen to the next one, recite it together, and make another bow. And we're going to do it wholeheartedly. So at the moment of bow, at the moment of reciting, nothing else matters. Everything else melts into the vow. Not forgetting everything else, including everything. Not just another thing to get through. But more is another opportunity to wake up.